Well, good morning, Living Water. Today we continue our series on the genuine church. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And then if you would mind standing, we have three verses that we want to draw a few points out from today. Starting at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, you are majestic in holiness. As Carol prayed, there is no other being that compares to you. And so the weight of this message uh, feels heavy upon me, Lord, as I seek to talk about you. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would speak through me today. I recognize that apart from Christ, how unworthy I am. So we come to you this morning, Lord, confessing our sins, asking that you would cleanse us from any unrighteousness, that you would forgive us that we may dwell in your presence. We give thanks to you immensely for what you have accomplished for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the unspeakable gift of your spirit and his work in our lives, who unites us and empowers us. I ask that, Lord, that you would take my feeble attempt to make known your holiness and help those who hear the words that I share to see you more clearly and to love you more dearly. Empower us to walk in your ways and to bring glory to your great name alone. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we make these requests. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Paul Frampton. You may or may not be familiar with his name. Just in case you're not familiar with it, let me give you a little bit about who he is. Paul Frampton is an English uh, theoretical physicist who works in particle theory and cosmology. From 1996 until the year of 2014, he was the Louis D. Rubin Jr. Distinguished Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he had taught for some 30 years. But about a decade ago, the professor experienced a series of unfortunate events. In 2008, he and his wife of 14 years divorced with no children. After spending three years alone from his divorce, he decided at the age of 68 to re-engage in the dating arena to get into the, the fray because his stated purpose was that he desired to have a family. Now, although his first attempt failed, he was not deterred from his desire. And I'm sure that he felt some sense of reward as he was persistent in moving forward when he met a 32-year-old Czech swimsuit model by the name of Denise Milani through an online dating service in November of 2011. 
They began to chat regularly via Yahoo Messenger, and Milani told him that she was longing to change her life. She was tired of being a glamour model, of posing for others. She wanted to settle down, have children, but, but she was worried of what he might think of her, to which he quickly reassured her that he would accept her. Now, each time that Dr. Frampton sought to have a, a personal conversation with her over the phone, she declined. But finally, she agreed to meet him in Bolivia, where she was supposedly doing a photo shoot. And so on January 7, 2012, Dr. Frampton set out for Bolivia via, via Toronto and Santiago, Chile. Things did not turn out as he expected, though, when he arrived. Instead of meeting Denise there at the photo shoot, she left him a message that she had to uh, abruptly leave that photo shoot to go to another photo shoot in Brussels and that she would send him a ticket to join her there. After a few days, a plane ticket arrived for Buenos Aires with the promise that there would be a ticket in Brussels once he arrived. She had only one request as he traveled to meet her. Would you bring along the luggage that I left behind? It has sentimental value to me. While he was in Bolivia, Dr. Frampton corresponded with an old friend, John Dixon, a physicist and a lawyer who lives in Ontario. Ontario excuse me. And John was alarmed by these events. And so because he was a friend, he, he strongly warned Paul about continuing with this course of action because he feared for his safety. Paul, reassuring his dear friend that he would be careful, flew to Buenos Aires to await the ticket to Brussels. Now, when the ticket did not materialize in a timely fashion, the professor decided to return home, seeing that he had been on this two-week journey and it had been fruitless in being able to connect with Denise. And so he decided to leave with Denise's bag in hand. Tired and ready to return home, seeing that classes were about to begin and he was going to have to teach another semester, he went into the airport and checked in not only his bag, but Denise's bag as well. As he made his way to the security gate, his name was announced across the loudspeaker and asked him to come to a specific location. He was surprised to find that he was greeted by the Argentinian police. They began to question him. They detained him, and ultimately they arrested him. Sometime later, as he stood before a judge, he was sentenced to four years and eight months in jail for attempting to smuggle two kilos of cocaine into their country. And what's interesting is this is one of the various scenarios that his friend John had warned him that potentially could happen if he was not careful. But now it was too late. I wonder in that moment, as the Argentinian police placed on those cold metal cuffs on his wrists, what was Dr. Frampton thinking? Because he had come to realize in this moment he had never been in contact with a true supermodel but an imposter. We might ask, as I asked myself, how could a man so brilliant make such a foolish decision after receiving such wise counsel from a trusted friend? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a guess. I'm going to say that his heart was not committed 
to holiness out of love for God. See, if we do not value holiness, then we will value something else. And valuing other things can lead us to places that we don't want to go. Bishop J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, gives us a thought experiment. And I want to quote him at length here because he, he sets up an idea in talking about this concept of valuing holiness and, and, and what that might mean in light of eternity. He says, suppose for a moment that you are allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you, could you feel there? To which of the saints would you join yourself and by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their taste, not your taste. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you've not been holy on earth? Now, perhaps you love the company of the light and the careless, the worldly minded and the covetous, the reveler and the pleasure seeker, the ungodly and the profane. There will be none such in heaven. Now, perhaps you think the saints of God too strict and particular and serious. You'd rather avoid them. You have no delight in their society. Think you that such a one would delight to meet David and Paul and John after a life spent doing the very things they spoke against? Would he take sweet counsel with them and would he find that he and them have much in common? Think you above all that he would rejoice to meet Jesus, the crucified one, face to face after cleaving to the sins for which he died, after loving his enemies? And despising his friends. Would he stand before him with confidence and join in the cry, This is our God. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Think you not rather that the tongue of an unholy man would cleave to the root of his mouth with shame, and his only desire would be to be cast out. He would feel a stranger in a land he knew not, a black sheep amongst Christ's holy flock. The voice of the cherubim and the seraphim, the song of the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven would be a language he could not understand. The very air would seem to be air that he could not breathe. I, I know not what others may think, but to me it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. In the face of such a thought, the words of Peter ring out more emphatically as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter, I, I hear your call as the Spirit speaks to you across the ages, and I desire to be holy, but what is holiness? Before I got into this message, I thought I had an idea uh, as I'd had past readings in the years. But as I began to read this week, I was reminded that there was still something to learn. 
One of the things that I discovered is that there is an experiential side to holiness that can only be known when we stand in the Lord's presence and see him face to face. However, what we need to know about holiness and what we can experience in this life, God has revealed it for us in his word. So as with other biblical topics that we've spoken in the past, scholars have several views when it comes to what holiness is and how to define it. And as opposed to trying to take you through every one of those views and review all of them, instead what I want to do is just lift out two kind of main aspects that some have mentioned because I believe those two are most profitable for our time together. So the first aspect of holiness comes from what scholars discovered and concluded by looking at the use of the word holy in other cultures either prior to when the Bible was written or were in that same region and how they use the word holy. Now they found as they looked at how holy was used in other cultures that the word holy was used to describe, to my surprise and perhaps to yours as well, both good and bad gods. Both clean and unclean gods were all described as holy. So it's from this insight that the scholars have concluded and we might learn that for pagan cultures for them Holy did not necessarily have a consistent moral quality attached to it. Instead, for them, the term holy was applied to that which was different from the ordinary experience of human life. It was other. Something from the divine realm. In a recent article that was given at ETS by Dr. Professor John Oswald, he sums this up by quoting from another scholar, and he says this, Dr. Goldhammer offers a helpful descriptive definition when he says the holy is something totally different from those using the term and implies a qualitative distinction between the divine on the one hand and human beings and the world on the other. In short, holy does not so much connote what is separate as it does what is qualitatively other. And it's through Israel's experience with God that they come to discover that the word holy can only be used rightly to apply to one being, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Different than the pagan cultures, God alone is holy. God alone is distinct from all others. And this is why Moses at the end of his or in his song after they had been delivered for Egypt uttered these words, who is like you? O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. God alone is distinct from all that exists, and thus God alone is holy in this sense. But there's a second aspect of holiness that has to do with being consecrated or devoted to God. Now, if you don't know, holiness is a major theme that runs throughout the Old and the New Testaments. If you were to do a search, as I did with my Logos software, and you look up for word holy or holiness, you'll find that it has almost 1,400 uses scattered throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament. Now, we don't see much of holiness in the book of Genesis, or only really one time, uh, or there's some other kind of instances there, but very, very few. It really explodes in Exodus when we get this kind of usage. But as we begin to look through the Bible and as I look through the uses of it, we find that the word holy is applied to a lot of things, not just God. 
Some of the things that I found is that it's applied to the temple, the tabernacle, the ground on which God appears, an assembling, a day, garments, angels, people, gifts, a crown, anointing oil, and the list continues. So what's going on in these instances? If we think about holy in this second sense, why is it being applied to these other things and these various things that Scripture lays out. Here I want to draw upon Dr. Oswald again. He says this in an interview. He said, look, a, three, a created thing could be given to a God. And when that thing was given to a God, then in that moment that thing became holy. So, for instance, if you gave a pot to a temple, that pot now was a holy pot because it had been dedicated to a God. So what does that mean? It, it, it now cannot be used for anything other than the God's purposes because it belongs to the God. So this is one basic meaning of holy, to be exclusively belonging to a deity and to be used for his or in the pagan cultures, her purposes only. Now, a second factor that plays out of this is that when a thing became holy to a God, fully dedicated to the God, it took on the God's character that it was dedicated to. So the illustration he gives is so looking at the ancient culture, say if you had a woman who became dedicated to the temple of a fertility goddess, she necessarily became promiscuous because the fertility goddesses were promiscuous. She didn't have the choice of being a chaste woman. No, she would become like her God. This is the idea that stands behind Judah's reference to Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. With this in mind, the second idea in mind, we get a sense of why God says what he says to Israel. For he says this to them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You should not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You should therefore be holy, for I am holy. Israel had now been dedicated by God's deliverance to him, and so he says they have to be consecrated to him, which means they need to be holy in character as he is to take on his nature. Another author sums up this definition of holiness with these words. He tries to pull these various concepts together. Holiness refers primar primarily to the quality of God, denoting his transcendent apartness from the rest of creation, his uniqueness, and his total purity. When the term is applied to people, things, or places that have been touched by the presence of God or dedicated to God, it connotes the idea of being set apart for God and thus belonging to the realm of the divine, which is morally and ceremonially pure. So God takes a term from the culture that they're familiar with, holy, and applies it to himself. But when he applies it to himself, he invests new meaning in it so that the Israelites understand that what it means for him to be holy is different than what the pagan gods make because God is distinct in his character. He is morally perfect and pure in every way. This brings us back to the text of 1 Peter chapter 1. Now from this text, I briefly want to draw out three reasons why we as a church want to be committed to holiness, not only as we have heard in past weeks, we want to be committed to the word of God, preaching and teaching and prayer, but we also want to be committed to holiness. And we find these reasons in 1 Peter chapter 1 and the verses that we read. We find the first reason in verse 15 and verse 16. God is holy. God is holy. Now there's a lot here. 
Uh, there's too many verses for us to go over. As I mentioned, there are some 1,400 verses that we could about that we could look at, and we wouldn't have time to do that this morning. And if we really want to engage in the holiness of God, we probably need a sermon dedicated just to that one topic. So I want to go where many scholars go when it deals, when they want to talk about holiness, they go to one specific main passage, and that is the commissioning of Isaiah, Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Now, Isaiah, different to perhaps most of us, is granted by God the privilege of being brought into God's heavenly counsel and to see the Lord of glory, which God gives to him. And it's in this that we learn some critical things about God. Let me take you to the text, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his, full of his glory. So the seraphim, these heavenly beings, we're not exactly sure about what exactly they are. We've not necessarily seen them. But whatever they're saying, they're speaking the truth about God. And the thing that they say about God is that God is holy. Uh, the most holy, if we were to put it that way. A scene that we find repeated in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Now what's of note to us is how the human who is like us Isaiah responds to encountering holiness. Notice in the text, one of the things we see of Isaiah is that he immediately is seized with fear when he is confronted by God's holiness. Why? Because in that moment, though he might have deluded himself earlier, he has with clear sight, he sees his own sin and his own unholiness. And not only he is, but he realizes in the presence of God, not only is he unrighteous and unholy, but the people and everyone around him is in the same predicament. And by being forced into God's presence here, cast into it, he also knows that he's in trouble. He knows by simply encountering God that no unholy thing or unholy person can stand in God's presence for long without being destroyed. And this is why I believe that he makes the cry out in the text. Hear what he says. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We won't encounter God's holiness and not realize that we're in trouble. The writer of Hebrews stresses a similar idea and presses this home to us when the writer says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's in the midst of this, uh, this predicament that Isaiah finds in himself in that we learn something about the Lord who is holy. Isaiah cannot resolve his issue of sin. He knows that something is wrong. He knows that he's in danger and he knows that he's in jeopardy when facing a holy God. But there's nothing that he could do to solve his problem. But God does something. In mercy, God sanctifies or makes Isaiah holy by cleansing him from his sin. Verse 6 of the text. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken 
with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your gift, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. One thing we learn is that God is holy. And yet he is the one who sanctifies his people from their sin. He has done the very same thing for us so that he might dwell with us. Through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, he has cleansed us from our sin and he has sanctified us through Jesus and made us holy. Brothers and sisters, God is holy. And if we want to dwell in his presence, we must be a people who are holy. We find the second reason in the same verses. God calls his people to be holy. God is not only holy, but he calls his people to be holy. Here we move towards that second idea or definition of holiness. God calls us in a very literal way to take on his character. And why does, call, why does God call us as Christians to be holy? There are a number of reasons, but let me offer to you three briefly. If you were to read in Ephesians chapter 1 and you were to come to verse 4, you would find out that before the foundation of the world that God had designed in his eternal purposes and plan that he would conform us to his holiness because this is what his desire or end goal for us would be, that we would be holy just as he is holy. Another reason is that he has de- we have become devoted to him, that we belong to him, we've been consecrated, we have been uh, part, now become part of his people through the saving work of Christ and that means that because now we're devoted to God, like the pot, then we're to serve God's purposes alone. And it's this idea that stands behind Paul's words to the Corinthians who are living their lives without thinking about what they're doing with their bodies now that they belong to God. And he brings this idea out to them when he writes these words. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Later in the letter, he cites similar words, and he writes these words when he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul is stressing home the second idea that we talked about with holiness, that that something fundamentally has happened to us where we no longer possess ownership over ourselves or our bodies. Now, because we become devoted by faith in Jesus Christ to God and by the presence of the spirit, we no longer are our own owners, but we are God's property. Paul says this has huge implications for what we do with our bodies, the kinds of relationships that we get into and what we choose to do with various other things in our lives. If something doesn't belong to you, how do you treat it? When you're borrowing somebody else's car, do you treat it like it's your own or do you treat it differently? And if that is the case, how much more are you to treat something that belongs to God? In this case, what belongs to God and not to you is you and your very body. What you do with your body every day is based on the fact whether you realize it or not that you belong to God. One of the thoughts that jumped out to me this week is that I have to remember that the Holy Spirit is not a house guest. He's the owner. And I've got to treat him 
as the owner and stop thinking that my body is my own and I can do with it whatever I want. I first need to ask the Lord of glory who owns this, who's paid for it with the blood of his son. Hey, what am I to do with this body that you've given me? What kind of relationships should I be in and not be in? Brothers and sisters, you're not your own. Paul goes on to say, additionally, Jesus has made us holy by cleansing us from our sins. It draws us back to temple imagery that was cleansed by blood for God's very purposes. Paul wrote, and such were some of you speaking about former sins, kinds of ways of life. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made holy, that is. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says you've been consecrated to God by Christ and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In our relationship with God, Christ has made us holy through his blood. And that's the reason why the spirit is able to dwell in you, because Christ has cleansed us from our sins. See, the spirit, he's called holy, so he doesn't take up places in a dirty place. But because of faith in Jesus Christ, Christ has cleansed us and made us a temple for God's presence. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence at you. But God doesn't simply stop at making us holy in relationship to us. He wants to transform our character. We see this throughout the text. You can probably think of numerous of texts in my community group. We've been studying this and we've been looking at it through the lens of James chapter 1. But I like what the writer of Hebrews says here in this text. He says one of the ways that God primarily works in our lives so that he transforms our characters to be holy like his character is holy is by sending trials, hardship, difficulty into our lives. And he says when those things come into our lives, we ought to view them as God's discipline. And every son or daughter or child of God, if you are truly a child of God, you're going to receive his discipline. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. He says, besides this, we have, all, we, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we have respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God brings trials into our lives, difficulties, hardships in our lives, so that we might become holy as he is holy in our character. What does God reveal to us in scripture about his character? Let me draw once again, lastly, upon the work of Dr. John Oswald. He sums it up this way. He said, God is good. That is, his desire for each of his creatures is constructive. He is right. That is, he can be trusted to do what is right in every circumstance. He is true. That is, he will always be true to his word. He will always act in accordance with what is so. He is faithful. He performs justice. That is, he will govern the world so as to restore. He is pure. That is, he is entirely one in his dealings with his creatures. He is not duplicitous. Finally, climactically, he is unfailing love. That is, he always chooses the best for his subjects, even especially when it is undeserved. Indeed, then the most striking thing about Yahweh is his holy character. Yes, his essence is holy. He is absolutely other, but equally his character is holy. His behavior is quite unlike that of his fallen creatures. He is not out for himself. We find our final reason in verses 14 and verse 15, holiness requires action 
on our part. Holiness requires action on our part. Now, Peter here says something that sounds similar to what we heard when we were journeying through the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, for us not to be conformed, he said here, to our passions of our former ignorance. Peter is saying here, similar to what Paul was saying, he's saying, listen, in light of God's revealed holy character in Scripture, allow God's holy character as seen in the Old Testament and most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, allow those ways that God has revealed himself to become the pattern by which we use to guide our lives and interact with the world around us and not allow our desires and those passions that come up in our hearts to direct our lives, as we saw in the case of Dr. Paul Frampton. This means, as Jesus says, that there's going to have to be times in our lives that despite the pull of our desires in a direction, we're going to have to say no to ourselves. There's going to have to be some tires, times in our lives when our desires go unsatisfied so that we might be obedient to God. Now, Paul lays this out by saying, if you'll walk in the Spirit, that is, if you'll follow the Spirit's leading in your life, then you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. We know from, as we've heard through past sermons, that the Spirit primarily guides us through the revelation God has given us, his word. And if this is the way that the Spirit primarily guides us, then that seems to indicate to us that we need to be consistently reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God so that we know the mind of God, so as we encounter life, we know what God wants us to do. But there's another consistent thing that we learn about people who are living in God's presence. One of the things we learn about people who are seeking to live a holy life, they're dependent upon God, and we see that in that they consistently pray. We see this at the end of Ephesians 6 where Paul, after talking about the armor of God, one of the things he attaches to putting on the armor so that we can stand when the devil comes against us, he says, you've got to be praying and praying all the time. You're not going to be able to stand against the enemy's temptations. And, and when he comes to seek to take advantage of you, you're not going to be able to stand if you're not in communication with God. See, in, in our own power, we don't have the ability to overcome our flesh. If we were able to do that, then we wouldn't have needed Jesus. But because the Spirit through Jesus has come and been given as a gift, we now have the ability to say no to the desires that so often took advantage of us before we belong to God through Christ. So we must ask the Lord because when we recognize in our hearts that there are desires that shouldn't be there, Lord, I want to confess and lay before you the desires that I see that I know are not like your character. And I'm asking you to remove what's in me. And put in me the desires that are like your character. I've often thought when I've, when I've contemplated this, what would it be like for us if for a moment that God would allow for one day that every thought that we had would be put on a screen for everyone to see? Would we want to be able to live like that for a day? Probably not because we recognize when we think about the fact that others would have full exposure to the things that we keep hidden, even from our spouses and our children and those who love us, that there's some things that shouldn't be there. And so we realize that there are things that God still has to yet work out in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray and ask God's help to transform us. 
One of the sermons I had a chance to listen to this week as we were talking about holiness was a sermon from Dr. John MacArthur, and he stressed us in the call of holiness that one of the ways that the Spirit works in our lives is using our conscience. And if our conscience is informed by Scripture, there will be times when our conscience will say, wait a minute, like John Dixon did to Paul. Hold up, brother. Hold up, sister. What you're about to do is wrong. Don't go down that road. And what we have to do in those moments, we have to be careful not to quiet our conscience saying, I'm going to be okay. Let me do things my way. Right? So when we're in those moments, we have to not make a pattern of behavior that when our conscience calls us and stands and says, do something different, we have to be willing to listen because the Spirit might be guiding us through our conscience to what is right instead of what is wrong. The Holy Spirit also works through the other believers to guide us. Sometimes when the inner voice, we quiet it, God will send along a believer who could be an outer voice. And that believer, sister, come along saying, brother, sister, hey, I, I, I love you. And because I love you, there are some things that I've been seeing lately. You, you, you're making some decisions. You're going in a direction that is not to be see, seen to be consistent with your profession of faith in Christ. And because I love you, I, I want to warn you that the path is over here, not over there. And, and you need to make your way back to the path. This says to us that that means that we need to be regularly involved with the local church. We've got to stay connected to other believers. One of the things that I have witnessed in my pastoral ministry that I, I'm sad to say is that often I found that when people began to distance themselves from the church, they, they, they began to become distant from other believers and they're not hearing the regular preaching of the word. They're not hearing regular involvement from other believers. What I find is that the consistent theme is that after some time, they begin to stray in the sin. Somewhere along, I find them sometimes involved in gross sin. And I say, how did they get so far from being faithful to Christ to now they're in places that they should not be? Somewhere along the line, somebody was not speaking into their life. And brothers and sisters, when you distance yourself from God's mean of grace, of, of working in your life through other believers, you'll find yourself straying. You may think to yourself, I'm strong enough to do it on my own. I can live this Christian life on my own. And what I'll tell you is that experience over time of watching other people's life, you'll find yourself in the same position as them. You'll be sinning. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. We need the body of Christ. But Peter says something else in this letter in chapter 4 that is just practical good sense. He says, listen, there are places that you ought not to go to because you know that if you get involved in those places, you are liable to sin. And if you know what those places are, it only makes good sense that you'll say to yourself, I know if I go over there, if I get engaged in that activity, I'm most likely to sin. I ought to then avoid that place. Yes, brothers and sisters, there are some places in this world you're going to have to say no to, where others are going to say yes, and you're going to have to say because of devotion to God, because I desire holiness in my life, I'm not going to engage in all the activities that the world feels free to do. If you want to live a holy life. But there's something that Jesus always reminds us of, and it is this, that as we pursue holiness in our lives, we must never forget what Jesus said. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
brothers and sisters, it's not in our own strength that we become holy. We do it in relationship with Christ as he works out his life through us. So we must depend on Christ and our relationship with him if we are to become holy. Brothers and sisters, we have to be committed to holiness because God is holy and he calls us as his people to be holy. Let me close with a, a poem that one pastor wrote in writing on this. It's just a very simple poem, and I think it reflects how our, all of our hearts should be as we pursue holiness. When he said this, Lord, I long to devote my all to you, to surrender my heart and will. And I complete in your holiness live, yet I confess a fragment lingers still. My heart yearns to be one with you, to stand complete before the king, and sin no longer a binding force, my all before you I must bring. Holy Spirit, descend upon my life, I yearn for the entirety of grace, with nothing restraining my heart, I long to see your face. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a holy God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made it possible through Jesus Christ, his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, that we're able by means of his sanctifying work to be cleansed so that your spirit could dwell in us and make us a holy temple. And that we are holy because we are devoted now solely to you. May we live for your purposes alone, transform our character to be like your character. We thank you, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we get ready to give right now to support your purposes in the world. And this is one of the ways that we show our devotion to you is through giving, Lord, to support your work. So we pray for this offering that we're about to take up. In Jesus' holy name, amen.